Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's up, everybody? This week on the show, we got a very special guest. Her name is Heather Griffith. She's a friend of Marcy and I's. Uh, we met on social media. Uh, she had asked some questions about a friend of hers who's an alcoholic, and she reached out to me uh, to ask me about some recovery stuff so uh it's a good conversation it's not really a recovery conversation it's more about um yeah i guess you'll just have to listen to find out hope you enjoy the show give us a like give us a follow thanks so much for your support appreciate you namaste hey everybody i'm rex and i'm right and this week we have a very special guest she's a friend of ours um it's kind of silly that we're doing it on zoom because she lives like two miles away but anyway uh we got heather griffith um, I met Heather on Facebook. She actually, uh, I friended her up cause I'm friends with her sister and she checked me out and asked me questions about, uh, a friend of hers who is an alcoholic and we've grown a friendship from there and, uh, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, Hey Heather. Hello. Good to see you guys on zoom. Hello. Oh, so glad to have you back. This is our take two, everybody. Oh we yeah. Uh, we are glitched. Yeah, we recorded an episode with Heather almost a month ago, and in the process of downloading it from the Zoom cloud to my computer, it ended up somewhere off in the ether. So mm-hmm. this is take two, and uh, yeah, so uh, how you doing? I'm good. It's uh, awesome. kind of a crazy day. I got some sick kids at home, so they've been instructed to be silent, but we'll see how that works out. So if there's background we have dogs that bark at the slightest sound. So we'll see. All good. Kids, Absolutely. dogs, eh, you know. Okay. <laughs> they all bark at the slightest sound. So uh, Heather, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what it is that you do, where you're from, how yeah. you live. I'm from Fort Collins. Um, I grew up here actually in this house, um, which is a long story about me being back, but involves me living in Boston for four years. Um, my uh Currently, I'm a child and family therapist uh, with a private practice here in town. Um, for the 10 years before this career, I was running preschools. Uh, my degrees are all in early childhood mental health, and um, all of my grad school research um, in my master's program said that the best way to make uh, community impacts on families was quality early childhood education. So I came back to Colorado from Boston and had been doing that. Um, in the last three years, I have uh, acquired four foster children um, who are great and will um, soon be mine. So uh, we really needed a different work-life balance than um, running preschool and, and some other things that, that running your own business takes. So uh, switch careers a little bit, but all the same work really, um, really focusing on early childhood mental health. But then I'm also working on my uh, doctorate in um, educational leadership and equality. And there I've been doing a lot of work on attachment, uh, via cultural attachment, um, which came a lot from my work with critical thinking uh, with kids uh, over compliance and um, some other just areas that kind of all, all came to that. So that's kind of what we've been ending up talking a lot about, um, are those kind of areas. Uh, and they're really, you know, pretty fun to talk about. So even though this is take two, I'm happy to talk all the time about those soapboxes of mine. So. Um, so 
how, how did you end up with four foster kids? Two of them were at the preschool um, and attending the preschool. And I, I talked with my husband at the time about, about foster care since like our second date. And it was um, an area that I'd worked in in Boston. Um, I worked at the foster care system and knew that I always kind of wanted foster kids uh, and that, you know, tough kids are, the troublemakers are really my favorites. And, you know, that's an area that I can really, you know, make a difference in that I have experience in training, working with bio parents and, you know, child behaviors and trauma and those things. So I uh, didn't mean to get them at the timing I got them. I was going to be done with my doctorate first. Didn't, uh, we were going to take teenagers and not younger children. And, you know, four wasn't the plan, but that's not how, you know, kids work and families work and life works. And um, I feel like I'm the luckiest. They are so great. Uh, definitely it's a lot for kids and, and now by myself, but um, worth every, every minute because they're definitely the best. So. Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing part of your story that, that needs to be needs to be known also that you're getting this super special look at the inside workings of like all of this stuff too. Yeah. It's nice to have personal experiences. You know, when I talk to, um, other parents, you know, and, and talk about it, like I, I have all the training in the world and I don't get it right every time. So, you know, it's not about being perfect. It's about being, being you and trying to have the best intentions. And, you know, I can really talk about that from, from real real spaces and, and not being perfect myself. So uh, never having to expect that from parents and, and being able to share in, in a lot of, a lot of things with them um, is helpful. And then, you know, there's a lot with foster kids that, that translates to every family and just, you know, those feelings of disconnect sometimes and dysregulation sometimes and, you know, other things that, you know, are really nice to be able to speak to, but also, you know, first of all, help these kids through and then help me through, but just to have lived experience uh, when looking at other kinds of research um, and how those things, you know, truly come about and truly interact and between my four kids and then also, you know, running preschools, you know, there's a lot of myths out there about education, especially early childhood and, and how that should go. And, um, you know, living in that space and, and knowing the real answers to that and really what happens on the ground is, is very helpful. So, uh, yeah, I think it's the best of both worlds in a lot of ways. I think it's awesome. There's so many scumbags who are in the foster <laughs> care system just to get a check every month. Um, at least where I'm from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> that can be a thing for sure. Uh, it's not, if you're spending the money as you should be spending it, you know, on the kids, it's not, you're definitely spending more money than than you're getting reimbursed on the kids, but there are definitely people who don't spend the money that way um, and or don't use their other kinds of resources wisely and, you know, cause other kinds of issues. But, um, you know, I think, I, I I think so. most people are doing it for the right reasons. And Boston, I felt like when I worked with foster care parents, most people started for the right reasons. The system is broken and broken in so many ways that are not helpful to foster parents and you know what i could always see with foster families was that if if you were able to separate out these are the systematic things that are going to drive me insane and those might make it so that you can't be a foster parent anymore i don't know but those things are always separate from if you can separate from how you interact with the kids so what you do with the kids does not have impact on the system. So the system is being crappy doesn't mean you give up the kids. The system being crappy doesn't mean the kids get punished for, for some reason. And people who could do that separation and that compartmentalization, they could last as foster parents. And those who could not and could stay, you know, doing the things for the right reasons. But people who let that system really, which it's hard. And I've, I've lived it when the system messes with things and you're like, I cannot believe that. How can I keep doing this with somebody you know, dictating that about my parenting or about these kids or these things I know aren't good for kids or, you know, whatever the thing may be at the time. It's hard to say, how can I keep doing this? And, you know, it's a different world than when you're, when it's your bio children. And when you say, how can I keep doing this? Your friends are all like, oh yeah, I know. But when you're a foster parent, you say, how can I keep doing this? Somebody says, well, you don't have to. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, and that's never been my boat. I can't, like, I can't live like that. Like I will do all the things. That doesn't mean you know, when you're a foster parent and there's at some points where you're working to get those kids home, um, which is no longer the case for my kids, but it's definitely a, you know, a space that you have to be at 
a lot of times and that's a different story. But other than that, like, I can't, I can't imagine doing this and, you know, there being ever a point to give up just because the system is it's definitely broken. It's definitely harsh, you know, and definitely people have been like, well, they don't do it anymore. I'm like, that's not how children work. Uh, these are my kids and it's tough, but that is a, a separate thing from parenting. So. Well, and that's, <clears throat> that's one of the cultural influences that we're trying to parent within, right? Is this system, you know, lots of systems, but that's one of them. Um, and that's kind of a, a nice segue into um, your deeper work that you're doing um, that Rex and I are so fast with and think is so important for everyone to kind of just like have this little seed planted because I think this is really important information that's going to grow as time goes on and we understand more and more about this. Um, and I'm actually, now that I'm aware of it, I'm starting to ping in the universe with other things. So I'm going to just start writing notes and sending them to you. Like, look what I found, look awesome. what I found. You're all the stuff that you've, you've talked about. So um, I'll let you talk about it because you can describe it way more eloquently than I can. Um, but yes, this, uh, these cultural um, influences on parenting and um, how culture and Parent, parents or family of origin can um, possibly be there or not to support the development of the individual, um, which that's, it's just so loaded. Like when you start thinking about it, there's so many, so many different things. So yes, you, you please, you please open this yeah. up for us. So just to give a little, I'll give a little like background path of how I got here research wise, because, you know, I think that there's, there are some elements of that that help. Um, so I started my, my dissertation research saying for sure, what I want to do is that I think these social emotional curriculums, you know, that are out there are not doing well on the diversity aspect and really are written for, you know, white middle-class families to be able to handle their problems. And I was like super on this. And, um, then I got, children that made me kind of stop my program for a little bit and started back up again and those kind of things. And then a bunch of other people started working on that problem and they've done a pretty good job addressing it in a lot of ways. And I was like, well, that's awesome. I could start my research over and still do what I was going to do. But one of my big things in doing that research was noting that we really didn't do a good job in any of those curriculums, but anywhere else at really allowing kids to you know, use critical thinking skills over compliance skills. And that is a really big soapbox of mine that it really bothers me is that even all of the like testing that's out there or the way to see if something is working or not, like one of these social emotional programs is whether or not the kids in the class or the kids in the, in the group are complying with everything. That is the measure of success. I do not like that at all. I don't think that we need to have teach kids to comply. I think we need to teach kids to think critically. And so I, you know, started down this, like, really, we need to figure that part out. You know, it's not helpful, really neuroscience wise between the ages of four and six, you take all of the kind of brain cells and you, your brain kind of decides which ones it's using and which ones the neuropathways it's not using. And then it gets rid of all those ones it's not using. So between the ages of four and six, we don't teach kids how to think critically. And we just say, do what everybody else says. And we should definitely not be surprised within, you know, when they're eight, nine, 10, 11, that all they're doing is what everybody else says. We didn't teach them how to do anything else. And we specifically thought four and six-year-olds don't know how to do that. We shouldn't give them opportunity to do that. They'll think, make things loud and messy and really hard for me. So let's teach them how to comply because clearly they don't know how. And then they don't have these critical thinking skills because we specifically during the time they needed them said that they weren't ready. It turns out not true and not helpful to us in the long run. We can reteach those things and we do. And that's what we end up having to do is restart over on teaching those critical thinking skills or they miss it. And we have a lot of compliance, you know, for things that aren't, aren't helpful. So that's where I went initially, but then really wanted to connect back with some of this, um, you know, diversity uh, thoughts. And what I noticed is that, you know, in those compliance measures and those social emotional learning tools and how they measured their success and those things, there was a whole section on on this kind of compliance with identity piece. And what I realized is that the other thing that we don't teach in that, which helped me kind of narrow my research, was that in that giant bubble of not teaching critical thinking is we don't teach kids how to form their own identities. We don't let them. If there's gonna be parent-teacher conferences when kids are little, 
you know, sometimes in middle school, we'll let them have some part in it. But before that, we're not letting the kids say what they are really good at or what they're proud of or what they want to work on or any of those things. That's not how that works. We say these are the things you should be proud of. These are the things you should be, you know, maybe ashamed about, maybe feel guilty about, maybe just work harder on, you know, depending on how we, how good the people are phrasing it. But then we don't let them do that. And then we expect that when they're, you know, 14, 16, 17, like, why don't they know anything about their own identity? Turns out we never let them have any, any control over their identity. We told them what was good and what was not good. That doesn't mean we don't want to teach them our values. This is my value on lying. This is my value on stealing. These are the consequences that are going to happen in this house. But what are you proud of and what do you want to do? You know, we often dictate a lot of that to them until they're older. There is no reason why two-year-olds can't show them their art projects for the last six weeks and have them tell you which ones they like better or all the pictures you've taken them of them in class or at home or anywhere and have them pick those things. You can teach five-year-olds how to make, you know, some smoothies with you. Obviously, you're going to have to just give the five-year-old a blender. That's not a good idea, but these are the things. And then let them choose the next time what goes into that, you know, into that smoothie. What do I like? not super difficult to let them have some agency over those things but we don't really give them that agency over too much of that we'll give them a couple of choices but as far as values or personality things or things that they're proud of we're not very good at letting them do that so that's so i went i went there and like we don't let people you know let little people learn about and, and form their own identities really we kind of put that on top of them and then i heard a podcast you know podcast script for a lot of things that was talking about a uh, foster family um, who had a Native American child and they were being told that they couldn't adopt this child because they weren't Native American and Native American children need to have first, you know, rights to the, their tribe gets first rights to them. And, you know, listening to the debate in that podcast, which was really so focused on the uh, parental attachment of that, that ch small child, the um, Native American child and how much that parental attachment to that family that he'd been with for two years, you know, the first two years of his life should be honored and, 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 you know, stuck with. And that made me start doing some research on, well, the thing is, he's not going to be two forever. There's a lot of kids who miss out on parental attachment, or you can really get some attachment skills in a lot of different ways and transfer those. But what about that cultural attachment? What about his, you know, wanting to know about his tribe and wanting to know about that heritage and wanting to know where he comes from in that broader spectrum in that um you know takes a village to raise a child but also a village to you know really help a, a child learn who they are um spectrum so i started doing so that's kind of the path of my research and ended up in this space where there is a whole bunch of not a whole bunch there's a, a little bit of new research out there um that we are just starting to learn about this uh cultural attachment kind of phenomenon or way of thinking about attachments. And that is specifically that for some kids and adults, but you know, some kids in, in this context have a really hard time attaching to one figure for a number of reasons. But a lot of it is just when they are afraid that one figure isn't strong enough to stand up for whenever. Maybe that's because of trauma that happened you know, that can for sure make that disconnect, but so can just the way that the world has kind of operated for them. It doesn't have to be a horrible reason. But one thing that doesn't change a ton is that cultural background, is that community background. And where does that come in? It's a lot of, you know, it seems to be a lot of the reason that um, different kind of cultural aspects of some school systems work. So there's the Harlem Children's Zone in, in New York. And a lot of that is like, there's a lot of identity, you know, based on being from Harlem in that space. And so like, how does that play into being able to manage those curriculums and those outcomes a little bit better? Same thing with a lot of kinds of charter schools and religious schools, you know, there's a religious community that comes behind that. So being able to place your attachment in that culture, that broader, you know, entity that isn't just one person can make a lot of people feel more secure and feeling more secure is really where you start for being able to make progress, being able to learn, being able to feel safe and grow, um, you know, really that hierarchy of needs, you need safety first. And so we, we really rely on saying all the time that kids need to have this parental attachment stuff down, but sometimes it's not parental attachment. It can be cultural attachment, but that means we got to let people learn about their culture. We got to be part of that. We got to, you know, allow them to define that um and be okay with that you know and be be good with the differences that exist there so um that's kind of the journey of my research and and where i've landed and 
you know, kind of where I'm seeing we need to need to change our, our thoughts a little bit. Yeah, and I think this is just brilliant. Like as far as um, within the context of the No Love podcast and like trauma and childhood trauma and resiliency and blah, 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 on and on. Um, to know that there's, you know, potentially bigger containers other than like one fractured relationship, like that there's, that there may be multiple containers that could potentially um, contribute to the stability of someone as they're trying to become and grow. Um, well, and recovery wise, uh, you know, so many of the people that I talk to as far as in my therapy practice who are recovering, like the, the recovery community is that for them. They are now, you know, that is something that for them hasn't changed and hasn't diverted from, you know, when they started and they can always rely on that as a, as a community to come back to. And there's so much of their values that are put into that. And that is where they lay that attachment. They didn't have the attachment before, or they broke all their attachments through addiction. And now they can, you know, use this community. And that's not the community that everybody, you know, is able to identify and, and be part of. Um, that's super scary to some people, but for some people that is, that is how they do that. That is their, you know, their new cultural identities as, you know, in recovery for the rest of their life and being part of that recovery community. So I found that interesting. And there's this huge body of research now that says that attachment is kind of the antidote for addiction. So especially that there's these many cultures, subcultures where these people have figured out, right, how to be there for each other. I, it's beautiful. And, and I think it, it, you know, there's so much potential, wonderful family, lovely stuff that can happen with this information that you're coming out with, like um, how we can contribute to this, like bigger container for one another. Like, it's so amazing to me to think about that there's, and then the, if that's a possibility, there's probably other possibilities, right? Of other containers that either we don't know yet or that can be just as vital to creating health and wellness for people and families. Yeah. Well, and my, you know, my, my kids come from a family that there's actually nine kids in the family and, you know, they were very insulated for a long time. And so, you know, their culture is really of that giant family group. And, you know, so being removed from mom and being placed in other houses, you know, they, they didn't have most of them, not all of them, most of them didn't have actual positive attachment to mom. They did have positive attention attachment to that family group. And so like that is their deal. And if I can say, hey, you can be part of this family group, seeing my family and doing whatever without me saying you have to let go of that attachment, which is what you put your security into because they've been in multiple homes. Like they can't, attached directly to my, me or my, you know, my space or my family, that's too scary. And these people have been here positive or negatively my whole time. So if I can allow them still put their being and their essence and their attachment into that giant family group without saying you have to, you know, feel one way or another about your mom or anybody in that space, and you can still be part of our daily functioning they can still live in that. And then they can decide if they want to, you know, reattach differently or get some parental attachment to me or, you know, which takes some time, but you have to be open to it. Right. So I can't just be like, well, we should never talk to those people or talk about those people or do those things because it's hard or I don't know things or it's scary or you shouldn't like them or whatever the other things, you know, people might say, um, which I get a lot from caseworkers. Like they shouldn't, you know, talk to these people because these people were bad to them. Sure. But let's look at where their attachment lies and how they're using that. And, you know, those things. And I don't always get agreed with by people. And I have to listen to a lot of people in this system still. Well, but, fine. but you have to be pretty resourced and pretty um, aware on a higher level to be able to function like that for other people. And not many people are there. No, you know what right. I mean? thing that you're able to offer, you know, and most people, even within the system that want to help and are trying to help are not really able to, um, as, as neutrally hold space as you're saying, you know, that you're, um, I mean, I don't see it as neutral. It's actually loving, but to be able to not have all this stuff that you're projecting on the kids or expecting about attachment, or it's just that you're able to have this more open lens about attachment has, has created a different framework and that's amazing yeah i have a friend uh 
Nick. Um, he's Native American, and he was raised by a very strict white Protestant family, and uh, never knew it. Never has no idea who his real mom is. Like ended up getting adopted through some like Christian agency who like. According to him, like I don't think he would lie about this because his parents seem like the kind of people they basically give the mothers money for their kids. Like here, like we'll give you fifteen hundred, three hundred, thirty-five hundred, or whatever, and then they take them and they put the kids in good Christian homes. And like, <clears throat> it's it's terrible to see their influence on Nick. He's like he's so racist against other Native American people. Like, he's always talking about how they're whiny bitches, like, blah, 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 blah. And, like, I mean, it, and it's like, and then, because I've known him for almost 30 years. Like, I've, I've spent time in his house. You know what I mean? Like, we kind of grew up in our late teens and 20s together. And uh, it's his parents. Like, his parents are, like, Civil War and, like, frontier buffs. And, like, all they watch is the stuff about, the, like, the onward Christian soldier you know what I mean? And it's like they've kind of indoctrinated his Native Americanness out of him. You know what I mean? It's, well, it's and, kind yeah. of weird. And well, to some extent, probably his like, you know, he has to choose now, right? Like I can't I can't have both if this if this group of people who clearly love and care about me are all the way, you know, so like I've gotten this parental attachment to this space. Now I can't have my cultural attachment. I have to let it go completely because it would break my other attachment. So, you know, if we could recognize that both can exist and both need to be nurtured, you know, potentially his parents could have done that differently. I am sure that they thought they needed to cultivate this attachment to our, you know, values and et cetera. And those things are important for other reasons. And, you know, Again, all of the old research is on all parent attachment and not this this other idea. So we can hey, really understand. Yeah, yes. Well, he's, he's a really bad alcoholic, really bad heroin addict. And like, so all through his high school years, he wanted to learn more about his culture. And they just denied him at every turn, everything. And then when he finally got his driver's license in his own car, he would start going to like, different Native American things around the state. They still, like, started taking his car away from him, punishing him, like, because they said that his people were savages. That anybody who didn't believe that their God wasn't worth knowing, that they were all going to hell. And, like, it really messed him up. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, and I, I was thinking about that when you were talking about culture, you know, like, this cultural container. Like, there's, I'm sure there's a spiritual container also that can act um, as that bigger nurturing presence, I guess, in yeah. someone, someone's life. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, with, with Nick's case and things like the identity development there that he was just not allowed to explore. Right. So if we shut people down on their identity development, which honestly has a lot to do with us allowing them to explore other identities that they're not part of. So that they understand that differences aren't better or worse are they are just something that exists right so we're not better than other people and we're not worse and if we let people explore those identities you know we, we it doesn't really help when we shush children from mentioning that somebody's in a wheelchair or somebody's black like we're always like Shh. like the other person doesn't know that they're black or in a wheelchair I'm pretty sure they already know pretty sure it's gonna be okay if the kid brings it up but when we shush them kids are like oh gosh that's a bad thing i get shushed for bad things so it's clearly not good that they are, you know, differently abled or that they're, um, you know, whether there's some other race or there's some other culture or they're wearing a hijab or like whatever the deal is. And we don't let kids talk about it. That to them means it's not okay. It's not okay to talk about. It's not, you know, okay to be. And that doesn't help them then be able to explore who they need to be. And what parents should, you know, if it's really hard for parents to think, well, if I let them explore their transgender, you know, thoughts and ideas, and they're going to turn out to be somebody who I don't understand. And I don't know what to, you know, how to relate to them and all those things. It is much more likely if you let them explore that, that they will feel comfortable coming back to where. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. They actually need to settle. If you don't let them explore that and they're, and it is a, a something that they have questions about, whatever it is, then they are much more likely to end up in that space and not feel like they can come back and settle into where they need to be, where they should be. They're going to stay in that rebellious space because coming back is too scared. If coming back is where they need to be, going forward might need to be where they need to be. I don't know where it is they need to be. But if parents you know, truly want them to end up I think a lot of parents say, well, they're not really that, whatever it is. Goth and emo are good examples too. You know, transgender is kind of the what's happening right now with a lot of discussions, but it used to be, can't be, I don't know, you know, used to be, you can't be like rock and roll. Yeah. Or like people like that's whatever, right. You can't be a hippie. You can't be whatever it is. Um, you know, whatever it used to be like those things can't let people explore that or they will end up being X, Y, and Z. Again, we don't know where people need to end up with their identity, but if you don't let them openly explore it so they can talk to you about it, then they're not going to be able to listen to what your ideas are on those values. And they're much more likely to get stuck there, wherever it is they don't need to be, because it's not safe to go to the other space. So if you really want them to, you know, end up who they truly are, you have to let them explore who they might not be and that be okay. And you be safe place for them to talk about that and figure that out. And that is much more likely to get them to a place where they're good and safe. Um, you know, there's so many statistics on the amount of suicides on, you know, used to be just LGBT community, but now it's, you know, mostly in transgender communities where most of that research lies right now, um, just because they, they don't feel safe figuring that stuff out. So denying the ability to look at your identity is an actual suicide risk as opposed to allowing people to do that genuinely saves lives. Um, well, so imagine it would be a high indicator for addiction and alcoholism later too. You know, like I'm, I, I know I've sponsored a dozen homosexual men who the reason they turned to drinking and drugs was because they felt ashamed and didn't want to come out. So they drank this blah, 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 you know, same old story, you know, just another trauma. But like, <clears throat> I would imagine that there's a lot of addiction and alcoholism that comes out of the foster care system. A lot of that, a lot of, you know, a lot of suicide, a lot of not being able to function in life and have supports and attachment and blah, 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 because again, their attachments have been, you know, cut off so much. And we didn't, 
like recognize or give them this opportunity to have this cultural attachment. You know, you can find that so that they have a community that, you know, doesn't have to be this family. It's really hard for kids to say, it's not this other family, it's you. That's super hard to say. That kind of sucks. Like, and also if those last people sucked, either my bio parents or my last foster family, then like, what makes it so you aren't going to suck? Like, you know, but taking that personally about you is that's not what it's about. It's about let's find them a safe place for that attachment to land. And then they can build other good attachments too. And maybe that will be to you and that's cool. But, you know, they, for kids who can't trust for good reason in one person, like let's allow them to attach culturally to a community. But that means you got to be open to their community, not being your community because it might not be and that being okay. And, you know, just really wanting what's, what's best for them might not be you and that doesn't mean you're bad it's just they need something different is this is this potentially a new um concept in connection like a a way of socially connecting that we have not been practicing as i mean i'll say as americans i can't really speak for the rest of the world but um we're we're pretty disjointed we're pretty cut off from culture we're we're pretty cut off from each other like um do you do you have any thoughts about that cultural attachment is definitely a much newer area of research um and actually most of the science that i've read about it that i like comes from canada um so it's uh i don't think it's it's real hard for how our policies and how our view of our own personal history is for americans to say until more recently you know, that multiculturalism as something to celebrate, it's something to put, we've definitely been like in the boat of something to put up with and be colorblind to, you know, whatever that color isn't necessarily just skin color, but like, I, everybody is the same. Everybody is the same. It's not the same as I'm going to celebrate your differences. That's not, and we aren't good at that because we have been so bad writing rules for writing systems for creating space for anything that's different we teach that difference is not good you know from young ages and you know being a social outlier is is not going to work so you know when all of our systems are set up for white men and being a social outlier doesn't work and you're not a white man you got to try to conform that's the other thing then we taught them how to conform and not to think critically and now we're stuck in a space where that doesn't work for so many people because it turns out we're not white men, middle-class white men for that matter. And so then what, you know, and what do we do? We don't have those tools because nobody ever taught them to us. So, um, you know, it's, it's tough in this society because our systems just really weren't ready to be introspective about that until very recently. And then I would say only about, you know, 25, 35, maybe percent of the time. Are we willing to do that? So we got to be willing to look at ourselves and say, this isn't about us being bad. This is about everybody being awesome and the different ways that they're awesome and difference being okay, et cetera. So big test. It seems like an uphill battle because like you have like people like yourself who are in the field that you're in trying to minimize the differences and and then like you know accentuate the, the beauty of the differences but then you know like ultimately we're all the same you know and then you have mainstream media that is just all about the vision like all about the vision you know it's all about red and blue and cis versus trans and gay versus straight like you know what i mean and it's like it's so divisive yeah it's divisive just, yeah you know um it's it's terrible ah uh, but like, and I thought about this, I remember we talked about this last time, but like this whole cultural attachment thing is like, it's why gangs work. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's when you, you know, and like, <clears throat> I didn't know my real father. So this is not a, a cultural or racial slur in any way. Where I'm from, the hood that I'm from, like most of us didn't know our real parents, you know, our, our real fathers. You know what I mean? Like I, I met my real mom when I was like, 13 you know what i mean but that was for a weekend then i got that you know spent like a few months with her over the next few years but uh 
you know, like the, the group that I hung around with, it's because we were the only male figures in our lives. You know what I mean? And we hung out and idolized our older brothers who were in these gangs. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I kind of stayed away from the gang life just because I didn't like being told what to do. <laughs> um, but I had a lot of gangbanger friends, you know, uh, a lot of gangster disciples, four-corner hustlers, vice lords, uh, Simon City Royals. And they're more loyal to their gang than they are to their families, except for their moms. You know, like this something about moms, you know what I mean? Like boys and their moms, thugs and their moms. The harder the, the harder the, the harder the boy, the, the more he loves his mom. Because mom's always the one that's gonna be there. You know what I mean? Yeah, to, usually mom's the greatest enabler. Yeah, usually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I say, <laughs> mom, you know what I mean? uh, yeah, well, I mean, again, when you don't have attachments or appropriate attachments or healthy attachments, you know. I might love mom. I might think she's always going to be there, but either that mom's working three jobs that doesn't allow for much attachment or, you know, mom possibly is on drugs and that's not a good attachment or mom, you know, is trying real hard, but they're six or seven children. I don't know. Like there's a lot of reasons where attachment just doesn't happen as much. Being single parenting. Yeah. Again, like none of these are, there's no judgment in any of those sentences, but where do you find that attachment? You find that cultural you know, space and yeah. for sure gang culture. Um, it's why, you know, it's why uh, breakdancing started um, in New York uh, is because the the people trying to diffuse gangs um, started to say, we're like, well, we'll just have dance battles instead of shootout battles. And people are like, yeah. I can identify with that. That's all I needed. They just needed identity things. They didn't actually need to kill people. So, you know, then they all made their little dance identities and then we made a whole new kind of dancing. Um, you know, B-Boys, that was the whole, that was the whole deal. So can't bring a gun to the dance fight. Um, so, you know, like there's a whole, again, like that super dance music, those things are all, you know, super tied to, to cultural connections. And that's what they needed was cultural identity connections um, in that space. And we just, you know, you can, change what the gang culture does if you change what the point of the gang is they just need their homies they need their you know their power in that their personal power in being part of something and there are lots of ways to change that without having people have to leave the gang just change the point of the gangs um but we're not going to do that with how policing is viewed we're not going to do that with how you know you can't you have to atone for your sins there needs to be justice not retribution not maybe i can do better not second chances not you know maybe i can use this piece of me that now i've learned from to be better for other people and to show them a different path um you know so it's well, tough. gangs aren't going to change their their mo's until there's no until there's no drug culture that's that's sure. the one. i'm not saying that that's an easy task i'm just saying that there you know there's a different view oh, no, I, absolutely take. But that's one of the, you know, like people who are for decriminalizing drugs and like ending the war on drugs. It's because you're creating an entire culture by making it illegal, especially in this country. The United States consumes 80% of the illegal narcotics uh, manufactured in the world. Drug culture is a thing, you know, yep. like there are, there are spaces, there are rules, there are, um, you know, underlying norms that you have to kind of know i mean there's no like i couldn't i don't know anything about drugs really i could not like go find them find the place to consume them and do it correctly if like i couldn't just do that i don't know the rules of that space i don't know that culture i would have a whole bunch of stuff to learn because that because it is an entire culture you know they would definitely be like you crazy outsider well no but you definitely have uh you have experience with alcoholism, which, you know what I mean? That's, that's how we met, you know what I mean? Yeah. Through a friend of yours, uh, who hopefully is doing well. Uh, he hasn't responded to any of my texts yet, but he might not have his phone. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's so I hard to not know. They could really hard to not know. I, he was there, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Uh, I think, uh, I was totally afraid of the foster care system because I had like 
Oh, so was I. Like, I was like, yeah. no way. That is the one thing that I won't. Well, like. and like, the, the, I had like six or seven friends who were in foster care in my hometown, and they were from North Jersey. I'm from like way down by Delaware. And these kids were like from way up by New York. And like, so like, uh, where I'm from, CPS is called DIFUS, Division of Youth and Family Services. And uh, at least when I was a kid, teenager, their thing was like, oh, if you're from an abusive home, we're just going to take you completely out of your environment, take you to the whole side of the state and put you with where you can just meet all new people. And it's like, man, like, don't you fucking know how mean kids are? Kids hate the new kid. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, and I, plus, like, I heard all these stories, like, I mean, where they would come to school wearing the most ratty clothes and like the, the food that they ate was shit. And they got beat all the time. And I'm like, I got that at home. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't need to go somewhere else for that. That's why when my dad kicked me out when I was 12, I made a promise not to tell anybody. It was our secret. Cause I didn't want the school to find out and be like, Oh, call somebody. You know what I mean? Like, and like, you heard the most horrible stories. Like I heard stories about kids getting raped and molested. And it's like, Oh my God. You know, our, our, uh, part of our goal for our, homestead and our property is to uh, provide a space for at-risk teens and young adults uh, to learn how to permaculture and greenhouse grow vegetables and stuff. But uh, we'd eventually like to get to a spot where we have a couple like two-person bungalows with like a community house for uh, young adults transitioning out of foster care who don't really have anywhere to go. You know what I mean? Like uh, there's a lot of them here in Colorado, you know, and uh, I'm actually going to be talking to a guy here in the next couple of weeks about looking for investors to start one here and then having one in every state. So that I used to work for a program in Boston called Shortstop, and it was for 18 to 22 year olds. It was, you know, basically a homeless shelter, but for 18 to 22 year olds, they had a myriad of situations, um, a lot of refugee type situations, and then you know, from foster care situations for sure, and just different, you know, some LGBT, you know parents kicking out type, um, things, but, uh, it was a really good program. I mean, it was, you know, it was super helpful to those kids for sure. And, um, one, I still keep in touch with on Facebook has his masters and doing cool stuff. And, um, he got real mad at me once cause I cleaned up his room for the carpet cleaning people and the white social workers in Haiti used to just come in and take all your stuff. And so, and they treat it like garbage and, you know, do whatever. And I didn't know that. And the carpet cleaner people were coming and I needed to get the things off of his floor. And he worked and went to school and like, didn't have time and, you know, had missed the announcement. And so I put all his stuff on his bed, including his trash can. And he lost his mind. And I was like, you are hundred percent right. That is on me. I was, you know, trying to be helpful, but I did that incorrectly for you in your, you know, in your space and obviously we're you know we fixed it and did the thing but like that's you know but we have to be able to recognize and be like you know i was trying to do the right thing and i didn't do it for what you come from from the space you come from and from what is important value wise you know you do not put trash cans on people's beds it's not a thing because that you know feels like you're treating them like trash i it didn't occur to me but i haven't lived those experiences but we have to be okay with looking at ourselves and saying hey not cool. You know, like I can change. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to be a jerk, but I was a jerk. Like it's still true. That's still what happened. So historic at this, uh, this mushroom farm down in Alamosa here in Colorado. And, uh, the way they grow the mushrooms, they're like these like four or five stacked bunk beds that they just have all this dirt in. And like they, to pick the mushrooms, they just take a two by four and there's like a lip that's about an inch on each side of the bed and they just take they have two two by fours and they start with one and they stand on a two by four and they pick the mushrooms and then they take the other one and go higher step up onto it and take the other one with it and they keep going but they're all short they're all from like guatemala and they don't have running water there like most of them have never until they came to the united states had never seen running water outside of like a hospital or like a shopping mall or something like that and uh we, we, every time breaks over, you go, for each shift, you go into the bathroom and there's just piles of toilet paper from them going to the bathroom and wiping and putting it on the floor next to it. Because 
I, apparently, like when they're first hired, they have to be told, no, you have to poop in the toilet because they don't want to poop in clean water. It's totally, it's like, it, it's like blasphemous to them. They're like, dude, yeah. we can drink this and you want us to poop in it and then throw these shitty paper in it. You know what I'm saying? It's weird. Uh, but uh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, well, hey, it was really good having you on. Thanks for redoing this with us. Uh, for sure. Totally appreciate yeah, it. Um, thank you so much. And it's awesome because this isn't our this isn't the normal kind of show we do, but it to, it's totally relevant. You know what I mean? Like it's I, important. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't want to just be like a uh, addiction recovery podcast. We want to be a recovery podcast for people who are yeah, yeah. Podcast, yeah. You know, and what yeah. you're doing, big big healing work. You know, just with them four girls. You know what I mean? Who I've met, they're four beautiful young ladies. They are. They're so nice. I'm like. So inquisitive. They had so many questions when I was working over there. But um, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope everybody feels better. Yeah. Quick recovery. Yeah. They're getting there. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm always happy to talk. And there's other subjects. And, you know, that can be helpful to anybody out there. Let me know for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And you have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank honey. you. You too. We'll talk to you soon. Right. Bye bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Uh, We talk about a lot of sensitive topics on this show. If anything that we talk about has triggered you or caused a reaction or you need to reach out and talk to somebody, you can reach us at nolovepodcast.com. Feel free to reach out to us there. You can comment on the show uh, or you can follow any of the links in the show notes if we're not someone that you need to talk to, if you need to talk to a professional. Thank you very much. Um, If you give us a like, I mean, if you like the show, give us a like, give us a follow uh, for uncut unedited programs you can follow us on patreon thank you for your support namaste hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.